Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night, student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. One night, I'm out running in the dark, and I look up at the sky and look at the stars, and in that microsecond, without thinking, I saw those dots of lights not as stars, but as planetary systems. So imagine when one day we look up in the sky and we see not that kind of cosmic loneliness, that extreme humility and feeling of insignificance, but we see a universe replete with life. That's Natalie Battaglia. Both she and her daughter Natasha are astronomers who plan on using the James Webb Space Telescope that was launched not long ago to hunt for planets outside the solar system. There are likely tens of billions of them just in our galaxy. But Natalie and Natasha are not just looking for any planets. They're looking for planets where there may be life. This is really fun. We seldom talk to two people at once on the podcast and almost never talk to a mother and daughter at the same time working in the same field. It's just wonderful. It's very rare. Thanks for having us. Oh, I'm delighted. Natalie, you're the mom and Natasha, you're the daughter. Yes. Yep. We fully expect for you to get it wrong and we'll just like wing it and respond accordingly. So don't worry. So the field you're working in is just so exciting to to me, and I bet to millions of people listening, which is what's out there, planets that we never knew about before. And among those, are there any that support life? And the James Webb Space Telescope that just went up is really going to be useful to you for your searches, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I'll say right from the beginning that Webb wasn't designed to be a life finder. Oh, that's interesting. But it's a stepping stone. There is so much we have to learn first about planets and the potential abodes of life. We know that there's this huge diversity of planets in the galaxy that far exceeds the diversity of planets in our own solar system. And we don't understand yet all the physical processes that lead to that diversity and what what the impact is on planetary habitability. So I think that's one of the most important things that we're going to learn over the next 10 plus years with Webb. And in that regard, it's a stepping stone to the search for life. There were a lot of people that were holding their breath when Webb was on its way up. Did that include (laughs) the both of you? 
<laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Of course, it was a holiday, so we were together, right? <laughs> yes, it was Christmas morning, 4 a.m. California time, and we were sitting in the living room with the rest of our family, anxiously awaiting the launch. What was it like? Was it a nervous moment? Because it wasn't even the beginning of those 400 things that had to go just right before it could be used. Yeah, I think people expected, you know, a, a launch and for us to be really excited, but it's not like that with Web at all because there's such a difficult sequence to make it all the way out to L2. So the 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 first moments of launch were so exciting, but then we've been on pins and needles for about, a, you know, a month or so ever since. Yeah, it's not the first space mission or launch that I've been involved in. I think the first time it happened, I was very just had complete confidence that everything was going to go well. Complete confidence in the engineers. This time felt very different. I didn't realize how much, how skeptical I was that it was going to work. So the fact that it has been turned on and is actually receiving photons and has made it to its final orbit is remarkable and so impressive. And how are you going to use it? How are you going to use it to find planets? Are you looking for planets in a different way using the Webb telescope from how you've looked before or the same way? There are different ways to look for planets with Webb. Um, Natasha does kind of a little of both, whereas I'm more focused on transiting exoplanets. Um, these are planets that have a very special geometry. They're orbiting their star in a, in a disk, mm -hmm. just like our solar system planets, but that disk is aligned so that they eclipse their star relative to, to us. And, and in fact, they're casting their shadow across our telescope, and we perceive that as a dimming of light. It's right. an eclipse of sorts. So all of those planets have already been identified from other methods. We're not searching for new planets. What we're doing is we're looking at planets that have already been discovered, and we're characterizing them in a different way. What do you mean by characterizing them? You know, when we first detect the planet, we really, we have such little information about it. We know its approximate size, and we know just about how much energy it's receiving from its parent star. But we'd really like to know so much more about these planets. And so when we talk about characterizing a planet, we, we, what, we're, what we really mean is we want to know what its atmosphere is like. We want to know what the full chemical composition of the atmosphere, what the atmosphere is made of. And we want to understand what the climates of the atmospheres are like, what their temperatures are. And so that's really what we mean when we say planet characterization. It's that next step after you do the planet detection. So there are, uh, there are a lot of different types of planets. Are there more kinds of planets than we have in our solar system? Yes, such a huge diversity. Really? It's the stuff of science fiction. It's, it's science fiction come to life. There are planets that have oceans larger than the Pacific made of molten rock. Whoa. There are planets that are the age of the galaxy itself. There are planets orbiting not one, but two stars, um, you know, two stars rising in the east and setting in the west, kind of changing positions in a pas de deux across the sky. So there's this incredible diversity of planets. And, and more, most importantly, the most common type of planet that we know about right now is a kind we don't have in our solar system. It's a planet that's intermediate between the tiny terrestrials that orbit close to the sun and the big gas giants that orbit far away, 
these planets are intermediate, so we don't even have a language to describe them. We refer to them as super-Earths or sub-Neptunes or mini-Neptunes, but really that just underscores our ignorance about the nature of these planets. Mm. And and that's the class of planets that we're going to be spending a lot of time studying with Webb. You know, I, I kind of understand why it's important to get to get you get a hold of a planet that's just the right distance from its star, the the so-called Goldilocks position that's just right, not too much energy to burn it up and just enough energy to support life. Is there a solar system out there that you're eager to explore? Uh, yes, many of them. There, there is one that's very special. I mean, we now know of over 4,500 planets orbiting other stars. Wow. And many of these are planetary systems. They harbor multiple planets. There is one in particular that we're very excited about. It's nearby, relatively nearby, and it harbors seven planets that are all terrestrial-sized. And three of these are more or less in that sweet spot that you just talked about, where liquid water could exist on the surface. That system is called TRAPPIST-1, and it's going to be among the very first systems to be observed with Webb. And I'm, Natasha has studied this in great detail, and we'll be looking at this um, object once Webb starts its science operations. What little I know about TRAPPIST-1 includes, I think, the information that is pretty close to us. Is that, is that true? Yeah, TRAPPIST is about 40 light years away, so it depends what you mean by close, but it's, yeah. <laughs> it's relatively close in, in terms of things that we're looking at. And um, one very odd thing about the TRAPPIST system is that the star is so small. The star is just about the size of, of Jupiter, and, so, and, it, and its temperature is about half the size of our own sun. And so, you know, we talk about these planets being in that in that Goldilocks zone, that sweet spot where it's receiving just the right amount of energy. But that sweet spot is so close, has to be so close to the star for it to for it to actually get the the proper amount of energy that it needs. And so these planets are also tightly packed. It's a very interesting system to observe. How did it get its name TRAPPIST-1? <laughs> it's, it's named after a ground-based survey called TRAPPIST. I think it's literally after the, beer, the Belgian beer because, <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's run by Belgian astronomers. <laughs> but, you know, TRA, transiting planet. It, it has an acronym. I yeah. guess it makes a night of observing more palatable. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> When you're observing these planets, I know this is basic stuff, but a lot of us aren't really in on this. When you're observing these planets, what gives you a clue that there's life there? What life might be emitting? The gases, I mean, is it methane or carbon dioxide? How do you know? Oxygen. Oxygen. How do you know that that's there? Well, the very first, our very first steps are going to be to look at um, the, the planet's spectrum. This is the concept that molecules themselves have very characteristic fingerprints that imprint themselves in these rainbows of light that we, that we study. And so that tells us that the, that the molecules are present. And then the, the next step is really understanding how much of each molecule is there. And that's the really nitty gritty, interesting part, because it's not just about whether or not the molecule is present. 
It's what is the balance between all of these different molecules. Um, on Earth, we have carbon dioxide and we have methane. And geology produces those things. It's an, a an abiotic process mm. that produces those. But if you look at something like methane, biology produces methane on Earth in about 100 times higher quantities than geology uh. does. And so then we, we consider, you know, if we saw very high amounts of methane, you might say, hmm, that doesn't really track with, with an abiotic process. So maybe there is something else that is also contributing to that full chemical uh, composition that you see in, in the atmosphere. And that's how you'd really start to, to get at this question of, is it life? When you're tracking the emissions that you're, that you're getting from a planet, is there any way to figure out what level of of complexity you're looking at in terms let's say let's say you say ah we found a sign of life how do we know it's not just a, a whole lot of slime i don't think we will know if it's microbial life versus intelligent life so the slime would be microbial life right i i kind of suspect based on the fact that earth shows evidence of microbial life basically as soon as there was as soon as water condensed out on the surface and there was surface liquid water, we had microbial life. So this was just millions of years after the Earth formed, very, very soon after the Earth formed. That suggests to me that microbial life is very easy to form, uh, whereas a branch of the tree of life that led to, to us and all plants and animals, that did not arise until some 2 billion years mm. after the Earth formed. Which brings up the question for me, just taking TRAPPIST-1 as an example, how long has that been at work? How long has it given evolution, if, mm. if it's happening there, a chance to work? That's a great question. Do you know the age of TRAPPIST-1, Natasha? Yeah, I was not just sure. thinking. I don't know actually what the age of the system is. It's not that's young. A, it's a great question. It's many billions of years. Um, but but this is so fascinating because, as I said before, there are planets orbiting stars that are the age of the galaxy itself, mm. like 10, 11 billion years. They have had twice the time for evolution compared to Earth. And I, I'm really fascinated wondering how life might evolve given 10 billion years of yeah, evolution. Right. There are so many unknowns. You must have you must have thought of them late at night before not falling asleep. Yeah. Right. I mean, to a large degree, we use Earth as an example. Yeah. So we're searching mostly for life as we know it. We study the metabolic pathways on Earth and the chemistry that that produces and design instruments accordingly. We try to have an open mind and think about other pathways. We try to think about life detection techniques that are more agnostic to the type of life that might be there. But at the end of the day, I mean, you've asked such a profound question. Are we really going to be able to recognize life when we see it? For, I mean, forget the question about whether it's microbial or intelligent. Are we going to be able to recognize life when we see it? It might I, I think be another the end kind of, the, of life. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, or we might mistake it for a geological process, yeah. or it might be there but in small quantities, or the chemistry might be different. I, I, what I'd like to see happen is look at, you know, 100 to 200, find 100 planets that are 
that have similar properties as Earth. Let's say they're about the same size and they have, they're receiving about the same energy from their host star. They're relatively nearby and their atmospheres can be studied. And we look at all of these chemical fingerprints that we talked about before. And then all of a sudden we notice that there's a small subset of those planets that stick out like a sore thumb. They're, they're characteristically different right? It's my, it's my hope that the living worlds will distinguish themselves from the non-living worlds on, on some axis of information that we will only discern if we look at a statistically significant sample of planets. Yeah, that's a great point to make about exoplanet studies in general. We get far less information about exoplanets that we do about our own solar system planets. You know, we can't send probes to exoplanets. We gain information about about them through sheer quantity, through looking at a lot of them and comparing them and trying to understand as a whole, what are we seeing? You know, what are the big processes that are driving sort of in aggregate the planets within our own galaxy? As we're speaking in February, I, I just became aware that there was a new planet found yesterday. Is that so? Well, I think it's a planet candidate. Are you talking about the new Proxen candidate? Yes, yes. Yeah, so our Proxima Sun B is is one of our nearest neighbors, and there was a, a, a third planet candidate found within the system. Uh, there's been one confirmed planet within that system, and then now we have two candidates. What's the difference between confirmed and not confirmed? Mm. There are astrophysical signals in nature that can mimic a planet. Oh. Uh, you know, when, when we find planets, for the, for the most part, what we're doing is we're observing the star and we're noticing something about the star that indicates the presence of a planet. So, for example, an eclipse. You know, one of the most prolific planet hunters was NASA's Kepler mission. And all it did was measure the brightnesses of a couple hundred thousand of stars consistently without blinking for four years, waiting for these periodic dimmings of light that happen mm. when a planet passes directly in front and eclips eclipses a star. That's one indirect method. Another indirect method is looking at the star and seeing that it's wobbling. Mm -hmm. That means that there's a planet pulling on it, mm. tugging on it. So all of our techniques are indirect. So we're observing some kind of a signal from the star. And there are mimics in nature. And we have to be really careful <laughs> that we're not getting fooled. We just had the Astrophysics Decadal Survey. Uh, the National Academy of Sciences puts together a review panel of scientists that think about what the next 10 years of astrophysics is, is going to look like. What are the big questions we want to answer? What technology is available to answer those questions. Right. And the number one recommendation from that process was a space-based telescope that would be capable of directly imaging a large number of terrestrial-sized planets in the Goldilocks zone near the solar system. So we're talking about an eight-meter class telescope, so even bigger than, than Webb. And in this case, this telescope would block out the light from the star in order to see the faint things next to it that are orbiting. And, and in that way, identify planets in the habitable zone that are terrestrial-sized. And that's the piece of technology that we need to really identify approximately, you know, some dozens of, of um, potentially habitable worlds that we can study. 
That's a lot of time and a lot of work, considering how much... That's why you have babies. <laughs> yes. So that's why ca- you have kids. That's why you have, you have your daughter getting yeah. ready. <laughs> when we come back from our break, Natalie and Natasha Battaglia tell me why searching for life elsewhere in the universe is so important to each of them and why they each have their own favorite way of communicating that passion. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter. Or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduce speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. This is clear and vivid, and now back to my conversation with Natalie and Natasha Battaglia. I wanted to get into what's clearly so personal to them about looking for life on other planets. But before that, I also have another question. You live an hour apart from one another, Natasha told me. <laughs> when you get together, do you talk about anything but astrophysics? She she that she will is... reprimand me if I talk about work. So we're very careful. <laughs> We are. We have our work life and we have our home life. So, so what, what about how it, how it, how it affects your, your thinking, your, your daily life? It means so much to you. Why? Personally, it's, you know, it's not just our lives, too. This, these questions of our, our place in the galaxy and the universe have been asked for centuries. And so the two of us are just building on this like hundreds of other people have, thousands of other people have. And so... I don't know. For me, for me personally, I think being part of something that is so much bigger than yourself is, is really profound and exciting. It's such a special thing to be able to put a piece of your, your passion into this much larger picture. Yeah. I mean, it gives meaning to my life in a very visceral way. Uh, it changes my perspective. I'll, I'll give you an example that's very simple but maybe helps to articulate this. Um, So I worked on NASA's Kepler mission, which was NASA's first mission of detecting potentially habitable Earth-sized planets. And it discovered over the course of its four years, four plus years, thousands of planets, some of which, about a dozen of which or so, were Goldilocks zone planets that were relatively small. Um, But what, what we were getting at was how common are planets in the galaxy? What fraction of stars in the galaxy actually host planets? You know, we just wanted to know the frequency of planets. Are they common or are they rare? And the data was pouring in, and we were analyzing this data, and we were computing these quantities. And I realized that the number we were getting for the average number of planets per star is greater than one. Mm. So that's just a number. 
But then one night I'm out running in the dark, it was dark, and I look up at the sky and look at the stars. And in that microsecond, without thinking, I saw those dots of lights, not as stars, but as planetary systems. Mm. I mean, I had internalized the information in a very deep way that completely changed my perspective. So imagine when one day we have the same type of an answer, but for life. And we look up in the sky and we see not that kind of cosmic loneliness, that extreme humility and feeling of insignificance, but we see a universe replete with life. I think that's going to fundamentally change our perspective. So that's one of the reasons, one of the things that drives me. I, I also think that by studying other planets, we will learn something significant about how to sustain life on planet Earth. And I think that that's really important. I saw you say something or write something somewhere that went like this. We'll probably have to get off our planet sooner than we think. Is that because we're wrecking the planet? We are having a global impact on our planet, yes. It's changing our ecosystem in a fundamental way that we're going to have to adapt to. But, but also, our sun is evolving. Our sun has a, a timer. <laughs> it's, it's fusing hydrogen in its core, and that can't last forever. So um, we say that our star has enough hydrogen to fuse into helium for another 5 billion years, but the sun is going to gradually get become more and more luminous way before that. And so the habitability of Earth is going to change dramatically, you know, on, on a billion-year timescale or maybe even less. You're so optimistic in your answer about how long we'll be able to survive our own behavior. How about you, Natasha? How long do you think the human species will be around? I, I mean, that that is impossible to say, but I do look to Venus as an example of what could happen to Earth. You know, Venus also once could have been habitable, and now it has hundreds of times the amount of CO2 that we have here on Earth. And so it underwent itself this globally... Um, this global heating event. And so, as my mom said, the sun is becoming more luminous. And so something that looks like what happened to Venus doesn't seem far off to what could happen to us. Here By not far off, you're talking in terms of millions of years, if not not busy. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, there, yeah, everything there. else is up to us, right? I mean, it's up to us what we do. One of the things I love about what the both of you engage in is a quest for really good communication and in some ways slightly different angles. Natalie, I, I know you're very interested in poetry and there seems to be a blending of your interest in poetry and your, your work in astrophysics. Absolutely. What is that connection? What I have learned over the last 10 or so years is that there are different ways to communicate science and I think that what I strive to do is communicate wonder. Mm. And wonder is very effectively communicated through poetry. And I think that there's, I mean, I've seen so many examples of that done so beautifully, discovering the poetry of Mary Oliver, Diane Ackerman, who was a student of Carl Sagan's, not in astrophysics, but in the humanities, and wrote an anthology of poetry based on the solar system that is so absolutely fantastically beautiful. She communicates this wonder of science, and I just realized that that type of communication reaches a whole other demographic on a completely different level 
than the kind of communication that we more traditionally do, Mm. you know? So, um, I think that art is a way of communicating wonder, not just poetry, but also visual arts, music, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. Natasha, I hear the leaf blower outside your room. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I think the way to find whether there's life on another planet is to listen for the leaf blowers. Natasha, write that down. Because no matter how many light years away, you can hear them. We'll put that in in our next web proposal. Yeah. Yeah. Wrong wavelengths. (laughs) Natasha, your interest in communication is very much along the lines that I am comfortable with, which is to be aware of your audience. I read your piece on the, the good talk talk. You're thinking about who's absorbing what you have to say and what's appealing to them, what what frequency they'll tune in on, like as, as if they were a radio, you have to broadcast in a frequency they can receive. I, I love what Maya Angela said about how, you know, people often don't remember what you said, but they do remember how you made them feel. And I think that that really does apply to science when we're communicating a message. Often the nuances of how to find life or how do we, you know, characterize planets won't stick with someone, but that idea, that sense of wonder, like my mom talked about, or being able to instill, instill in someone the same curiosity that you have, that is a feeling that can stick with someone for a lifetime. And so I think that concept is hugely important when it comes to science communication. I wish we could talk longer. We're coming to the end of our time, and I don't want to take you away from your eyepiece on the telescope. They don't, you don't use an eyepiece anymore in a telescope, do you? Sadly, no. And Natasha's not an observer. She's a theoretician. I don't even look into telescopes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we end, our, we end our conversations all the time with seven quick questions. And I'd, I would love it if I could get an answer from each of you on each of these questions. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, okay. I, I know. Yeah, I know. I know. They're not, not so trivial, these questions. First one is not necessarily with regard to your work, but with regard to anything. What do you wish you really understood? Want to go first, Tash? <laughs> Why don't you go first since it looks like you have something on the tip of your tongue? Oh, the pressure. I, I mean, I could, like you said, I could talk forever about the, the scientific things that I wish I understood. But if I'm really, truly honest, um, you, you know, I have this impression that the universe offers up exactly what we need at any moment in time. And I can't explain that. And of course, as a scientist, I'm really educated about statistics and You know, I I joke with my friends about non-Gaussianities, you know, things that this kind of Jungian synchronicities that I can't explain. And I'm just a sample of one. So I don't have the data to really know if there's what that means exactly. And I, I wish that I understood that better because I have the impression that there's so much that we don't understand. Good. Natasha. Now that's related to work, though. Um, I'm not really sure. I I wish I... I really love the the global collaboration aspect of JWST, and I wish I really understood how to 
catalyze that level of collaboration in general. Good. Mm. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> you you say, oh, really? That's so surprising. And then you pretend like you're going to Google it, and then it just shuts them down. <laughs> you know, you know, Alan, I took your uh, your your communication class, and so I, I, I have an answer to this. Oh, oh great. <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. No. One thing that I learned was if, if, if someone has a wrong fact and you tell them that they're wrong, they'll just believe your wrong fact 10 times or their own wrong fact 10 times yeah. more. So it's, you know, of course, you're supposed to do anything but tell them that they're wrong and, ins and instead, you know, ask a, a more simplistic question, like to understand sort of the basis of where the fact came from. I mean, that's like teaching, right? That's what we do in the <laughs> yeah, classroom. Exactly. We don't we don't throw facts at students. We try, everybody comes in with misconceptions. And so we ask them questions in order to get them to unearth their own misconceptions. Mm -hmm. That's the way to really learn. Um, not to throw facts at people. <laughs> okay, next. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, that's actually pretty what easy. It, <laughs> what is it like at the dinner table in the Battaglia house? <laughs> 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 I swear people think the, the Battaglia gets are given like chalk at the dinner table and forced to answer equations before they eat their meals. <laughs> So, so I did Na not know Natalie this. is laughing as if that is true. <laughs> no, 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 it is totally not true. In fact, we tried very hard not to um, have it be astronomy 24-7 in our household because my husband is also an astronomer. Oh, so wow. uh, I think we would have ruined science for the kids had it been any other way. So what's, this, uh, but, what's the strangest question anyone has asked you? Well, so I gave a public lecture in Hungary in Budapest once, and what I didn't know at the time is that there's this demographic in Hungary who thinks that um, the Magyars or the Hungarian people are descendants from an alien species from the, a planet orbiting the star Sirius. And so one person in the audience stood up and asked me, if NASA's Kepler mission purposely did not point the telescope at Sirius because we knew that there was life there and we wanted to pretend like we didn't know and find life someplace else. And so it was kind of a conspiracy theory type of question. <laughs> yeah. And for strange, that's good. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Ooh. That's hard. It's so, yeah, that's really difficult, especially in a COVID world where we're operating, you know, via Zoom and, and can't use body language or, mm -hmm. or eye contact because I feel like that's usually what I default to in, in real life. I think most of the time I just, I, I'm, of course, I'm going through my mental Rolodex of the people mm -hmm. that I know, but um, I think I, you don't give them cues, you know, like those typical cues like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm, really. You, you, know, you, with, just kind you withhold of, those cues. You withhold those cues, yeah. but, you know, I'm also finding more and more as I get older and I'm really thinking strongly about diversity, equity and inclusion, I want to create inclusive environments. And that means I can't allow as a leader, I can't allow a person to monopolize conversation in a way that creates an uninclusive environment. So I've had to be more vigilant about shutting it down. And that requires a certain level of courage and rudeness that doesn't come naturally to me, but I think is important. Let's say you're at a dinner table, which is liable to happen any minute now, 
and you're sitting next to someone you don't know, how do you strike up a real, a genuine conversation? Hmm. Tasha's good at that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <I am? laughs> Let's see. I think, I think I always default to asking questions about where people live and where they have lived in the past. I think especially my generation of people are so transient. People live in all sorts of very interesting places and I've lived in interesting places. And so I think it gets to a lot of interesting conversation about family and, and, and job and education and, and all sorts of things without, you know, directly asking someone yeah. what they do for a living. How about you, Natalie? Uh, well, every human knows something that I don't. Oh. Every human has lived something that I haven't lived. So I approach it from that way and kind of channel my paternal grandmother who was always uber interested in all humans. So she would unearth those facts about people that were absolutely fascinating that you never would have thought would have come from that person. And so I always remember that as an example. And I try to think, what does this person know that I don't? And I make it a goal to try and figure that out. That's great. Now, what gives you confidence? <laughs> that that fifty percent of my genetics is in this incredible human being right here. <laughs> uh, that's too kind. Um, I think I I think um, the whole concept of kill him with kindness, which is something I I learned from my husband who in high school was barely five foot, 90 pounds. His parents told him to survive high school. You just got to kill him with kindness, you know, exude positivity and kindness, and that will give you the confidence. And I, I really love that. I think it's kind of become my mantra. I wonder though, I mean, is confidence overrated? Oh, uh, tell I, about I, that a little. What do you mean? Well, I mean, it's okay to be not confident. I mean, I think a lot about this imposter syndrome and how it affects marginalized groups or underrepresented groups in our field. And when we say, you know, you have to have confidence to succeed, first of all, confidence is often mistaken for competence. Mm. The two are not the same. Mm -hmm. And and I think that it kind of puts the onus on these underrepresented groups to step up to the plate and puts the responsibility on them. And really, at the end of the day, if we... In, it don't embrace our ego so strongly, um, let go of this idea of confidence, maybe we would be generating more inclusive environments for these underrepresented groups. And it kind of takes that idea of the imposter syndrome and puts the onus on the the majority to create these inclusive environments and, and not put so much emphasis on confidence. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? If I had to narrow it down to one book that most impacted my life, it is a used book that I found in a bookshop at Berkeley when I was an undergrad called Brokaw's Brain by Carl Sagan. And the reason it was so impactful to me is because the, the like page one, the introduction, talks about wonder and the feeling of searching for meaning and having a deep reverence for mystery and how oftentimes we turn to religion to express those feelings, but that really scientific discovery and exploration taps into the same reverence for mystery, curiosity, and sense of beauty that religion does. And that was a profound realization for me because I, I had trouble prior to that really understanding 
what it was I was searching for when I think about, you know, trying to find meaning in my life and how I wanted to make this world a slight, a better place, uh, you know, better than, than the way I found it in some way. And, and so that book really helped to crystallize all of those thoughts. Great. How about you, Natasha? I think my answer will be maybe slightly less profound, but I, I think the, the book that changed my life was uh, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. I think it was the first time that I really thought deeply about systemic injustices. And the, his, his main message in that book is no person can be treated or, or can be judged by their worst act. And I thought that really changed my perception of, of how we treat people. This has been such a happy time for me talking to both of you. <laughs> I feel like you have brought me into the dinner table. Do we get to learn what your favorite, most, most impactful book is? Oh, when, when <laughs> Natasha said that hers wasn't profound, the book that changed my life was Top Horse at Crescent Ranch when I was, <laughs> when I was eight years old. What is that? Is that like a Western? <laughs> it's, a, it's a story about a, a horse on a ranch. And uh, I knew from that moment on that I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and wow. I started oh. right off by writing a book that was the exact opposite of that book. And I called it Not the Top Horse at Crescent Ranch. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that about you. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much fun meeting you. Thank you so much for <laughs> being too. on the show. Thank you so much. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Natalie Battaglia is Professor of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She was the co-investigator and mission specialist for the Kepler Space Telescope, which detected well over half of the almost 5,000 exoplanets discovered so far. Natasha Battaglia works at NASA Ames Research Center, and she'll be co-leading the Webb Telescope's campaign studying the atmospheres of exoplanets that are candidates for harboring life. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio, you can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Gold Beckerman. In a new book called The Quiet Before, he argues that successful movements for social change need a period of what he calls incubation. I think what I had come to observe over the last 10 or 15 years especially were social movements that flare up very quickly into the sky, grab all of our attention, and then sort of seem to fizzle. And I wondered if there was a kind of a step missing. And when I looked historically, it seemed that there always was this sort of period of 
You know, the title of my book is The Quiet Before, this moment where people could come together, dream together and argue and debate. And that has to happen in a space that's not big and public and performative and where everybody can shame everybody else. It, it demands those certain conditions. Gall Beckerman and why it's best to think before you leap. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>